Well, in our teaching uh, series from this Hall of Fame chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, in fact, I, I'd invite you and indeed encourage you to go back and read all the way through Hebrews 11. It's pretty a fascinating thing. We have kind of taken some deep dives into uh, a variety of people and instances who exhibited what I call <clears throat> faith with boots on. But today we're going to arrive at verse 32, and you'll see that up, right up on the screen, where the author seems like he thinks he's running out of time, and he says, and what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Now, when I got up to this verse, I thought, well, if he didn't have time to talk about it, maybe we'll just skip it. We'll move on. I'll just go out to the next group of people because he suddenly gets into the prophets and some other people you've actually heard of. But then I thought, no, these guys are emblematic of who you and I are, which is a bunch of cracked pots. Not cracked pots, but cracked pots. And that's kind of the theme of what we do anyway at Restore is say we're taking people who are a bunch of cracked pots and hoping to restore them in some way to be useful in God's kingdom. Now, these four guys that we're going to take a look at today are from the period of the Judges. And if you want to read a wild book, go back and read the book of Judges. It was an era in Israel's history where, and this is a quote from Judges chapter 21-25, it says, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound the least bit familiar? Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And so the book of Judges, we taught this down in prison a number of years ago. And what I remember is it talks about 12 different leaders that God raised up, 12 judges, if you will. And they were to judge Israel as they went through these 12 cycles of sin, judgment, and grace. So there'd be really bad stuff. God would send a judge, hammer them good and profit, and then they would all repent. And so there would be uh, the next uh, some grace shown. But now here's what we know about the four guys that we're going to look at today. And you'll see their names up on the screen. We got Gideon, who was a judge. He defeated the Midianites. We got Barak, who was not a judge, but who worked under a judge. We're going to come to that person a little bit later. He defeated the Canaanites. You've got Samson, who was a judge, and he defeated the Philistines. And then we got Jephthah, who was also a judge, who defeated the Ammonites. So he, these are these four cracked pots we're going to take a look at today. <clears throat> now, these four guys are only mentioned this one time in the New Testament, just in this little section. And that fact really ought to kind of leap out and say, well, why only one time? Well, we also need to know that each of these people had significant character flaws. Now, if we started up here with Nancy, we went all the way through, or there's ended up there over over here from Mary Evelyn. Do we all have significant character flaws? Uh, yeah, if we're honest, we probably ought, we probably do. But these were real men, uh, flesh and blood heroes, uh, whom God considered uh, worthy of being honored in spite of their flaws, and their faith was kind of like ours. And if you think, well, what's your faith like? I'm going to tell you a little bit about my faith. Um, sometimes my faith is mingled with fear. I worry about things. You know, fear, F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. That's fear. Uh, sometimes uh, my faith is mingled with a little bit of unbelief and doubt. I wonder whether this can actually happen. I can, you know, God, is this really what you had in mind? Uh, sometimes it's spotted with compromise. Uh, well, God, if I do more of this, will you do more of that? Or vice versa. 
Uh, sometimes it's just troubled by human reasoning. It's like, I can figure this out. I don't need God's help. Does that sound well familiar with any of you, or am I the only one? And yet, I still have faith. I mean, that's the really weird thing. I can be, be, go all of those different ways, and yet it still comes down to, I have faith in God through Jesus Christ. See, God knew all about their faults, even as he knows about all of our faults, but he honored their faith anyway. Now, lock in the back of your mind that little word, anyway, because we're going to come back to that a little bit later. But let's start with Gideon. Here's the first one. Gideon, who was fearful. Now, we're going to track back in time about 3,000 plus years. And you meet Gideon, and in Judges chapter 6, verse 12, it says, The angel of the Lord, and I'm going to stop right there, because the Hebrew word is Malach Yahweh. Anybody know what that means? Well, that generally is the term that means this is the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. Whoa! Gideon minding his own business, and suddenly Jesus shows up before the New Testament. And it says, this angel of the Lord, this Malach Yahweh, came to him one day and said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, this surprising word came in the midst of the Midianite oppression of the Israelites. Uh, The Midianites were a huge army from the east who came riding into Israel, of all things, on camels, which would have been a very disturbing sight to see. They came each year as the Israelites had just finished harvesting their crops, and then they would plunder the entire land, get back on their camels, ride out of town, and wait until after the next harvest come, and they would do the same thing over and over and over again. And as a result, if you read through Judges, the people were not living in towns and villages, hardly. They were living out in caves out of fear. And in response to this crisis, God taps Gideon on the shoulder and says, I'm going to use you to deliver my people. Now, this angel of the Lord is very clear. Gideon, you're the right man to deliver my people. And he repeats that two or three times. But every time he repeats it, uh, Gideon says, who, me? (laughs) And the response is, yeah, you. Uh, Well, you got the wrong man. No, I don't. You're the man, Gideon. That's why I'm calling you. So all is now set for this big battle. You can go back and read some of these great stories. There's a showdown between the Israelites and and the invading Midianites. Uh, men are scattered. The enemies are, are approaching. Uh, everything's ready for battle. Everyone is ready for battle with one exception. Gideon. Gideon is not ready to lead this battle. Uh, he's still not sure that he's the right man to lead Israel. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When I was asked to head this up, I, I kind of looked at Mark and I said, you, Are you talking to the right guy here? And Mark said, absolutely. I said, okay. <laughs> but I was a little bit like Gideon. I'm not sure I was the right person. See, at this point, Gideon does something very interesting. He said, if I'm the right man, uh, can you do a, a miracle for me? Can you do a sign for me And uh, that is really right that I'm supposed to lead? And so he, he actually names the sign. He said, I'm going to lay out a sheepskin. I'm going to lay out a fleece. And uh, if you can make the fleece wet and the ground around it dry, I'll know that you really think I can do it. And so when God does it, he goes, well, that was kind of a cool trick, but, you know, maybe that happens regularly. Could you reverse the process and make the ground wet and the fleece dry? And, of course, 
Uh, only God, only then did God finally, or when Gideon did this, only then did Gideon finally believe that the Lord um, had told what he told him in the beginning was going to happen. Now understand something here. It's not a sin to ask God for a sign. I don't know whether any of you ever prayed and asked for something and asked God to give you a sign. I mean, if this is what you want me to do, if this is what you called me to be, I need to have some verification. Now, I'm not saying that maybe uh, if you could send an angel down to my bedside one night, shake me and say, Barry, yeah, it's okay, I'm here. It's got, I'm, it can come in a variety of ways. But praying for a sign. So it's not a sin uh, to ask God for a fleece, but it's a sign of weak faith because he already knew what God wanted him to do. So when you look at Gideon's life, uh, you don't see a man of great faith. What you see is a man of weak faith that God chose to use greatly. Now, if you read Judges chapter 7, and you really should, you're going to see that God used Gideon in uh, just 300 guys. I mean, they're going to battle against thousands. But God says, no, you just need 300. And some of you know the story. And they sprung a, a nighttime raid on these Midianites, and he had this classic way of doing it. You know, take a torch, cover it with a pot, take some bugles, and that's how you're going to win this battle. And at this point, Gideon's probably thinking, uh, hold it, could we try another sign or two, whether this is going to work. But he divides his 300 into three separate camps up on the top of the hills, and the Midianites are all gathered down in the valley. And at the appointed hour, we know what happens. They pull the... Uh, jugs off of the flames, throw them down, crashing down, wave that, blow their horns, and suddenly the Midianites scatter and run off, and they are defeated in a wild battle by 300 people. And so, in the end, what do you have? You've got uh, Gideon, turns out to be a pretty good military leader, uh, once he got past his fear. And as long as he thought he couldn't do it, guess what? He was right. But once faith replaced Fear, he won a mighty victory for the Lord. That's our first crackpot. Let's go to the second one. This guy is Barak. Uh, I, I'm going to call him Barak only because I called him Barak for a long time, but I didn't want to make it sound like Barak either. But actually, the Hebrew pronunciation is Barak. Uh, he was timid, Barak the timid. Now, whenever you mention Barak's name, if you know anything about the Bible, you always have to add another name. Anybody know what the other name is? Deborah, yeah, Deborah. It's never just Barak, it's Deborah. And by the way, Deborah always comes first, Deborah and Barak. Now, who is Deborah? Well, she's not his wife, but Deborah was the only, only, underline it, female judge in all of those 12 judges God pointed over Israel. In a strange way, Israel had fallen so low that there weren't any worthy men around anymore, and God turned to a woman. Now, I'm not saying that to put a knock on Deborah, because she's clearly a very brave, very intelligent uh, woman. Uh, she judged Israel because no man would step up and do the job. And after 20 years of humiliating oppression at the hands of these Canaanites, God raised her up to represent him to his people. Now, since Barak was the commanding general, if you will, 
Deborah sent for him and told him to go into battle. And you see what she said. So she, Barak, sent for Barak, son of Abinadab, from Kadesh in Naphtali, said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take you 10,000 of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. And then Deborah says, in, in that time, I will lead Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go along with me, I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I'll go. I don't know if that's the way it actually sounded. But very well, Deborah said, I'll go with you. But this, look at this next line. But because of the way you're going about this, because of your whininess, the honor will not be yours. Guess what? For the Lord uh, will give them into not your hands, but into my hands. Kind of interesting. He goes on and says, I'm going to, Deborah says, I'm going to actually lure Sisera down into the Kishon Valley. Well, partly because these guys all had iron chariots. And then God rained on them. They all got stuck down in the mud. Um, but God's going to give them into your hands. Now, on one hand, this is a pretty simple deal. God gave the battle plan to Deborah, who gave the plan to Barak. All he had to do was rally the troops, go into battle, win the victory. But that whiny little comment, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go, I'm not going to go. Now, in that time period, and we might even say today, you know, whose job is it to go in and do the battle? In that day, it was, of course, men. They were to stand up and face the enemy. But being a man means having courage in the face of great danger. But Barak wouldn't go unless Deborah went with him. Now, in, in case you... Um, think I'm too hard on him. Uh, you need to understand what she says to him in verse 9. And she says that at the end, but because of the way you're going about the honor will not be first because the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. Now, even Deborah, a great leader in own right, didn't like his whiny little response. In fact, as I'm reading through the story again, I thought, I wonder if Clint Eastwood would have said that if he was called to do those things. But then again, I can partly understand a little bit of Barak's hesitation. And we find out in later verses that the Canaanites had those metal chariots. And so maybe he was worried about it. This meant they had a huge advantage. That's why Deborah leads them into the Kishon where God causes it to rain. They all get stuck in the mud. Now, in a rather other interesting, ironic twist, Sisera, the, the commander of the Canaanites, escaped from that battle and ran away only to be uh, tricked and trapped and nailed to the ground by a woman named J.L. Now, when, when uh, they went uh, to Barak, uh, Barak was hunting for the commander. Uh, she said, come and I'll show you where he's at. And there was Sisera nailed to the ground with a tent peg through his temple. J.L. just said, crawl under here, hide for a moment. Bam, she nailed him. Killed not by a man, but killed by a woman. So even though Barak led the troops, who gets the credit? Deborah and J.L. But we need to give him the credit he deserves. He's listed in Hebrews as a man of faith, and he was, but he was just too timid when he should have been a stronger leader. We'll come back to him at the end. Let's go to the third one. This is Samson, who is out of control. 
I mean, most of us know the general story of Samson. We know that uh, he was to be a Nazarite from his birth, uh, which meant he didn't shave his, his or cut his hair. That's where his strength was going to come. Uh, we know he defeated the Philistines time and again. We know the whole story about how Delilah tricks him into his, uh, where his power comes from. Uh, we know about his eyes eventually being poked out. Uh, we know that he gained revenge uh, when he pushed over the pillars and killed 3,000 Philistines in one of the most dramatic biblical death scenes ever. But there is so much more in this whole story of Samson. He had it all. He had good looks. He had good strength. He was popular. He had the blessing of God. And he continued to throw it all away. Now, it could truly be said that Samson had unlimited potential. Uh, No man in the Bible started out with so much and basically ended up with so little. No man ended up with less. Uh, He had it all, let it get away. So Samson is a, a kind of a bristling bundle of contradictions. He was a man of prayer given to uncontrollable fits of anger. He was a leader of Israel who lusted after Philistine women. He was a man of God who lacked common sense. He was empowered by the Spirit, yet often lived in the flesh. Sound familiar? Maybe that's been your life up to this point. I'm not sure. Now, one commentator I found said, Samson was a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. In other words, this guy was all over the map. You couldn't understand him. But he's listed in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith, yet he slept with a prostitute. You kind of go, what? We're going to go back to prostitutes again like Rahab a couple weeks ago? So when you read the story of Samson, we tend to think that his problem was all in the sexual area. And actually his problem was not in the sexual area at all. His most basic problem was he never learned how to control his emotions. First of all, he's filled with lust. Then all of a sudden he's filled with anger. And then he's full of lust again. And then he's full of anger again. And then he falls into this lust again. And he's full of anger again. Uh, He's kind of riding an emotional roller coaster uh, from peak to the valley and running around big, wide, sharp corners. And he just does it all over again. I mean, Samson is all over the map. One moment, Samson, if you read this story, he's worshiping God. The next verses, he's flirting with Philistine women. And on one occasion, he leads Israel to an amazing victory uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And right after that, he's sleeping with a Philistine prostitute. Now, not longer after that, he runs into good old Delilah, who tricks him into cutting his hair off, which leads to him being imprisoned and then having his eyes poked out and ultimately his death. See, Solomon, or Samson, never really learned how to control his emotions, so his emotions then controlled him. Proverbs 16:32. it's not on the screen anywhere, but I, uh, this could have been written about him. Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. That would, should have been his life verse. In his day, Samson did take more than one city. He took many cities, but he never learned how to control his temper. He never learned how to rule his spirit. He never knew the first thing about self-control. And in the end, it was his runaway emotions that got the best of him. So his kind of zigzag life teaches us that it's very possible to what? To be empowered by the spirit and do great things. And yet at the same time, yielding your life to human passions. 
See, Samson at some point was under the control of the spirit, and other times he was under control of his own sinful flesh. Deeply flawed, again, just like all of us. Finds himself battling, battling anger, illicit desire. He could sometimes do some absolutely amazing things for God, just like most of us. He could turn around and make some amazingly stupid mistakes, just like some of us. And yet he began to deliver his people from the Philistines, just as the angel of the Lord said he would. And he shows up now in Hebrews 11. Another crack pot, just like you and me. The fourth one is a tough one. This is Jephthah, who is foolish. Judges 11 tells you the essentials about Jephthah. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Some of you may know the rest of that story. Now, maybe, you know, there's more to his life than that. Uh, But what we know from Judges 11 is that Jephthah uh, was a mighty warrior. He was a Gileadite. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. And I don't know if you can kind of look past that. His mother was a prostitute, so he had not a very good beginning. And maybe that's why he was such a great warrior. He just had all this internal anger or whatever. But either way, he was very uh, rash and foolish in, in, in the decisions that he was making. When he grew up, his family actually turned against him. And so he ran away and he literally became an Old Testament gang leader. He, he was the uh, gangbanger of his day. Uh, he was a powerful warrior. Uh, he was a gun for hire or maybe a sword for hire in those days. But when the Ammonites decided to attack, the Israelites suddenly wanted him back home again. They said, yeah, these guys are coming after you. Will you come home and fight for us? And so they, he bargained with them and said, sure, I'll fight for you. But then he turned around and went back to the Ammonites and said, uh, how would you guys like to make a bargain and not get into a fight because, quite honestly, uh, these people are not worth your time. That didn't work either. So he was trying to play both sides against the middle. But the Bible then says that the Spirit of the Lord came on him as he prepared to go to battle. And, and at that moment, he made a foolish mistake that would haunt him for the rest of his life. And it's the one thing that we actually remember about him today. Now, his vow is up there. He says, whatever comes out of my door when I come home, if we win the battle... I will sacrifice that to the Lord. Now, no doubt, he was probably thinking maybe a goat or a sheep or a lamb or something would walk out. But the very first thing that walked out the front door of his house when he got home was his daughter, his only child. Now, distraught, the scripture says he tore his clothes and he said, I made an oath to the Lord and I cannot break it. And so for two months, he sent his virgin daughter up to the hills with some of her friends. And at the end of two months, Judges 11:39, he did to her as he had vowed. She died a virgin. Now, I'm at, I'll be honest with you, there's a little bit of debate as to whether, how this really happened. Now, I believe it, he did exactly what it says there. That he actually offered his daughter as a burnt offering to the Lord, which, by the way, was a heathen practice, which was... Uh, forbidden by God, but there are other people, a few, that say, well, he just let her die a perpetual virgin. Either way, either way, it was a very rash, stupid, foolish vow. 
Judges 11, 32, it says, and it came on the heels of a vast victory over the Amorites. In other words, he wouldn't have had to make that promise. The vow was unnecessary. The vow was dangerous. Uh, And these were depraved times. The moral situation had sunk so low that I truly believe, just what Scripture says, that Jephthah actually sacrificed his own daughter. So here... We have kind of the hardest case of all. If you're talking about crack pots, this guy is split wide open. We got a gangbanger, we got a gang leader, the son of a prostitute who made a rash vow, wins a mighty victory, sacrifices his own daughter, and shows up in Hebrews chapter 11. On the surface, that is really hard to wrap your brain around. So, what are we going to do? What are we going to think about these four flawed heroes? Well, you got Gideon. Gideon who was afraid to answer God's call. You've got Barak, so timid that he actually needed a woman to tell him what to do. Samson, who couldn't control his emotions. And Jephthah, who made a foolish vow. Four flawed men, yet they're in Hebrews chapter 11. And all I can say in response to that is if those guys made the book, there's room for you and me. Now, I'm not saying out of any pride. I'm just saying if those guys made the book, we're no different. We made this book, too. See, down deep, these were, were men of faith who believed in God and were willing to act on what it was they believed. It, it, this is very significant. And their, their faults then can be kind of overlooked. But those faults cannot and do not keep them out of the Hall of Fame. So right now, uh, you might be wondering, why would God use people like this? Crack pots. Well, here's my answer. God uses flawed people to demonstrate His grace so that when the victory is won, God alone gets the glory. That's why. See, Paul says much the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, now we have this treasure in what? Clay jars, clay, clay pots, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not us. So that's all we really are. We're a bunch of clay pots. We're a bunch of uh, ordinary kitchenware, uh, clay pots that can easily be broken and are often broken. We are not expensive. China, you buy at some uh, huge, uh, some high dollar store. We are just beat up stuff from Kmart or Walmart. Uh, But we're all cracked, we're all chipped, and yet God in His grace uses us, and here I came back to this one word I asked you to remember, anyway. He uses us anyway. Take a look at this. Gideon was fearful, but God used him anyway. Barak was timid, but God used him anyway. Samson did a lot of dumb stuff But God used him anyway. Jephthah made a terrible mistake, but God used him anyway. So I think it kind of comes down to this. Either we believe in the redeeming redeeming grace of God or we don't. See, if we do, then we should not be surprised that God puts four flawed people in in the Hall of Fame. And we ought to be glad that these four guys actually got in there because that means that God can still use people like you and me. In one commentary on this, uh, I read this. It said, thus, in all the saints, something reprehensible is ever to be found. 
yet faith, though halting and imperfect, is still approved by God. How many of you looked in the mirror this morning? Comb your hair, Jeff. <laughs> you looked in the mirror. Um, I did a po- I did a speech one of the, in the first speech class when I was in college, and I started out. I said, uh, when I got up this morning, I looked in the mirror and I thought, could there be a more handsome young man than me? And the class all laughed, and somebody said, "Ha!" So we're all reminded that we are not quite what we appear to be when we look at ourselves in the mirror. We're not perfect. We're far from it. And our faith is also halting. Our faith can sometimes be imperfect, but our faith is still approved by God. So then there's no reason why the faults that we labor labor under should break or dishearten us, provided we go by faith to the rest of our race and to the calling we receive from God. So here we got the last part. Like Gideon, well, we are slow to answer the call at times. Like Barak, we sometimes need somebody to push us. Like Samson, we let our emotions guide us wrongly. And like Jephthah, we say things that hurt ourselves and sometimes hurt other people. That's why I want to end today by simply saying to you, friends, by the power of the Holy Spirit, push on by faith despite your failures, knowing that God can use people like these guys which means that he can use us broken people and can restore us as well. May God bless our cracked pot journey to restoration.